You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Is Ka a wheel? Is Stephen King the greatest horror writer of all time? We're going to find that out today on our special episode of Systematic Geekology. We are the priest to the geeks on a very, like I said, special episode of Stephen King, his cosmology, the origins of his writing and everything else there. And I cannot possibly do this task alone. And in fact, this episode itself is kind of special because we will be splitting it into two separate parts. One where I will be with my co-host here, Kevin Schaefer. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm great. How about you, Christian? I'm okay, man. Ready to ready to just take charge of this. I, Stephen King is one of my favorite authors. Love yeah. him. So I'm ready for this conversation. Then in a twist on how we do things, TJ and I will be doing a kind of in the same essence an episode, but together there as well. He wasn't able to come with us today. So we're going to do that at a later date. But for now, you're stuck with me, but you actually get to enjoy being around Kevin. So, Kevin, uh, what have you been geeking out on recently? Well, very in line with this episode and just like horror Halloween themed, I watched all of the Fall of the House of Usher, which I know you okay. and I talked a lot about uh, Mike Flanagan on a previous episode when I was talking about Midnight Club and we kind of delved into a little bit of his universe. But it is a great Halloween watch. I highly recommend it. Uh, and I do think you like I think Midnight Mass and Midnight Club have the most like spiritual themes out of the whole um, shows in Mark, Mike Flanagan's canon. But even with a very like heavy pulp kind of series like this, um, very horror driven, there is it still has a lot to say about wealth and power and influence and family dynamics uh, that, yeah, I would love to go deeper into on another episode, possibly. Excellent. Yeah, I'll definitely I need to catch up on that. I have it tabbed up on screen already just when yeah. i do have the time sure because uh, i'm very interested to see where he goes with poe uh, yeah. as much as like midnight mass is very i mean it's very stephen kingy he's got mm-hmm. you know, pretty much mm-hmm. salem's lot and storm of the century all in one there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh love that a lot so uh, i will be checking that out definitely but right now i've been geeking out on spider-man 2 which just came out and i am having the time of my life just swinging through new york city like just good to be back in gear again after the first game and uh, solving the mystery of the symbiote and uh, the craven hunting everyone. I am about, I think my, probably like 75% done with the main story. Uh, really enjoying it. I don't, uh, my own main complaint is I kind of nerf Peter a little bit. It's not like the worst thing in the world, mm-hmm. you know, in favor of miles a bit, but I like both characters a lot. So it, I don't know. Peter's my favorite character of all time. So it's, it's hard for me to see him not, be as active as normal but other than that excellent game i'm having a ton of fun yeah so that's it for that (laughs) we're going to be getting into our main topic of discussion and as kevin and i were talking about earlier uh we had a bit of a miscommunication with scheduling and of how much he knew about the cosmology side of things as opposed to like some of other king's writing so it's good that we're splitting this up anyways so we're going to split it up in that sense of we're going to be talking more about you know, Stephen King as a writer, mm-hmm. uh, how much we like him, his influences and stuff like that. So, Kevin, how did you get into Stephen King's works? Yeah, so I did not grow up a huge horror fan. I am now. Uh, I got more into college. But my first intro to Stephen King was at age 14 when I watched Shawshank Redemption with my dad for the first time. So that was the first Stephen King adaptation I saw even before Stand By Me. but that was a huge influence on me. I actually did a post recently because I just turned 30 and I was going through every year of my life and picking out a movie that influenced me. And that was easily number one for the year 1994. 
And so that was actually my first intro. Uh, and then subsequently, I liked a lot of his literary fiction first because um, after seeing Shawshank, I later read the uh, novella anthology Different Seasons, which has mm-hmm. the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption story in there. It also has the story that Stand By Me is based on uh, and a couple lesser known works in there. So that was actually my intro. I really gravitated toward that kind of literary fiction where he's exploring uh, characters who are you know, like runway in prison, like in Shawshank, or uh, just kind of outsiders and, you know, um, friendships and mystery. All these themes were really uh, intriguing to me. And then I kind of got into his horror later. The Shining was definitely the first um, big horror novel by him I read. Uh, Of course, a classic. And, uh, you know, and and that's the thing. What's interesting is, like, my dad doesn't do a ton of horror, but he loves, like, the big Stephen King ones. So he loves Shining. And we watched that. And then we actually just went the other day um, at Playmakers Theater in Chapel Hill right now. They have a production of Misery going on. And that's one of his favorites. And so we went there. We loved it. It is an excellent. And it was actually written by William Goldman, who also wrote the screenplay uh, for the famous movie with James Conn and uh, Kathy Bates. And so that was a great time. And yeah, I think I just over time, I got really into all of his works. I I mean, I, I have friends who are, way bigger fans and have devoured all his material um in the same way as like i've consumed so many comics and you know and dc and star wars and all this stuff but uh but he's you know just such a brilliant writer on writing remains one of the best books about writing ever written like and that's what i go back to repeatedly i think i read it the first time probably early college i want to say somewhere around there uh and then i continually go back to that one it's an excellent memoir uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I love it. I love, you know, and, and I want to do, I like for the movie adaptations, I really like it one and two. And it's, I find it funny that people criticize it too a lot and they say it's not as interesting. I think that's just one of the, both films are one of the best Stephen King adaptations up there. And it, um, in some ways is an improvement on the novel because as much as I love like the book there, it could use some editing. And <laughs> I think the movies, less actually, cocaine. Yeah, less cocaine, less little, you know, like, um, and I think the movies capture all the core elements of the story really well and bring it to life in a, uh, in a really entertaining and interesting way. Um, and then, yeah, so just, I mean, I've read a lot by him over the years and I really like looking at all the films, um, that either he was involved with or that were adaptations of his works. I like seeing different directors approaches to him. So, I mean, I think the best ones to adapt his works have been. Rob Reiner, Frank Darabont, uh, and Mike Flanagan. But there are so many, like, um, like I earlier this year, I watched The Dead Zone, which is a really good one with Christopher Walken. And I like some of those kind of earlier stuff, like uh, uh, Pet Cemetery, And then I watched Christine recently, which is a okay. really fun one. That was one that um, based on a Stephen King book, and then uh, John Carpenter adapted it. And that one is just hilarious because... It's literally about an evil car that comes into this possession <laughs> of this nerdy kid. Uh, it's another perfect Halloween watch. But but I think what draws me most to Stephen King is, yes, he can provide these like killer concepts for different genres. But at the core, he always has really well drawn out characters and really layered storytelling. And yeah, I mean, sure, there are um, stories by him that aren't 
as sensational as others, but he knows how to tap into just human sensibilities and really make characters that resonate with a wide range of people. And yeah, I think that's why, you know, at age, what, he's 75 or something, and he's still cranking out novels every still year. Going. And I, I mean, he has never lost his touch. He just has that uh, continued passion for storytelling. And, and the book on writing really delves into him as a person and what got him into storytelling in the first place and what's carried him through over the years. So that's just a little bit about my background. But what about, what was like your first introduction of you, whether it was a book or a movie? Yeah, sure. Real quick before we do get there. Uh, when was yeah. your birthday again? October 19th. Okay. Well, you're one day behind me. I think I so, saw happy belated. Yes. Happy belated to you as well. 33 you. going on 75 right here. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but, uh, and real quick, you did mention it on writing as well. That has been a tremendous source oh, yeah. for me, for my yeah. own writing as well. Like not everything in there is what I agree with, but that's okay because sure. writers are different people. You don't sure. have to, I don't have to be a mini Stephen King. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to be anywhere near like me. Like, it's just how it is. But uh, if you're looking into it, you're even thinking about writing just anything in general, like look it up. Like the man yeah. knows the stuff. Like he's clearly been at this for a while. It's excellent stuff. Now, as for me, how I got into Stephen King's works, I, as I've mentioned before, when I was a kid, hated being scared, hated anything to do with that, anything that could make me feel unwell or uh, terrified. I removed myself from the situation. Like uh, it was forever before I could see the Kali Ma scene in Indiana Jones uh, because I didn't want to see someone's heart being ripped out, you know? Yeah. And, and now that I'm adult, I can finally do that. But I believe it was, no, let me, it was my uh, junior year of high school and I was in my English teacher's room and she is one of the best teachers I ever had. Uh, and the one before her, like my 10th and 11th grade English teachers, not to say the others were bad, but I really gravitated towards them more. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she introduced me to Stephen King, said, hey, like you're starting to get some of these things because part of the stuff we would do would be some creative writing pieces. And have you ever read anything by him? I said, no. So she said, I know you read really long books, so I don't feel bad about recommending The Stand to you. And this is this is the unabridged version of the stand, which is over a thousand pages long. And I was reading that book and I was captivated because I I think I mentioned before, like I'm a complete sucker for found footage movies. I'm also a complete and utter sucker for post-apocalyptic literature, film, what have you. Just like I want to see like what does someone dream of a scenario if, you know, a virus came out and it killed like 90 whatever percent of the population or uh, you have uh, a bunch of vampires take over zombies or whatever. Like what leads to the situation? How do people survive in that situation? And he provided that in spades. It's not a perfect book. I mean, I still rated the 10 out of 10, but you know, it's excellent. And uh-huh. just seeing him develop that mythos and you get a bit of that. Uh, have you read that at all or watched the miniseries? No. And I need to like that. There are big gaps in my kind that I would like want to get to. Like I've read it. I've read, uh, you know, uh, signing and, some of the others, but the stand is kind of the, is the is one of the big gaping holes in my uh, in my Stephen King fandom. That's more than fine because we were also talking beforehand, and he, uh, Kevin has actually read some of his, his newer stuff that I'm way behind on. So we'll get to that in a moment. Because so I, I read the stand, and I just kept going with that. Uh, just you know, The Shining, Carrie, 
got to Salem's lot. And like the dumbest mistake of my life was reading that at two o'clock in the morning uh, as a thunderstorm was outside. And I am there like under the covers, reading a book, knowing it's not real, but at the same time being completely and utterly terrified. I have yet to recapture that feeling again, except for like reading Uzumaki, same thing. That That's a, a manga, by the way, a, a, a horror manga at the middle, in the middle of the night while it's raining, bad decisions i'm dumb i was a dumb kid <laughs> but then eventually uh same teacher uh miss mackle uh gifted me her dark tower series because uh it was about that time she was about to move away so she knew i was really in getting into morning king and like uh allowed me to read hers and blown away by the the mythos he was creating there gotten a bit more like how his world started connecting to each other uh-huh, and that's uh-huh. i think that's one major reason why i do that in my own writing as well because i like things to connect uh-huh. and like i have like if you're paying attention like there'll be a mention of something here that'll be said in another book and say oh that's from that world oh that's that character said that uh-huh. or they were there uh-huh. you know, i love stuff like that because like it, it it's one of those things if you're paying attention to his stuff you're rewarded for it and uh-huh. i love that as a writer and i love that as a reader and he pays off in spades. Like it's not like he planned everything in advance. He's one. He's he's gone on record several times before. as be like sometimes I just sit there and write, and sometimes I outline things. And I'm an outliner. Like I could never imagine just going and just whatever happens happens. But I've also never taken a massive amounts of cocaine at that point in my life, which he has been off of for a very long time. He's been clean uh-huh. for a very long time, but. That's why I stand there. It is fascinating, though, where, like how he can do, that, especially with like the volume of his work and some yes. of them. It's one thing to not outline, you know, a short story or a novella, but when you have these huge epics, and he says that he doesn't do extensive outlines and he'll just go kind of with the nugget of the idea, that amazes me. And I, you know, I mean, I believe it. He can do it. And that's why I think what you were saying about on writing is that yeah, you're not going to agree with everything in there, advice wise, but. That's why it's really good to read different perspectives from different yes. authors. Um, but yeah, it's oh, it's just fascinating when he uh, says that because I'm the same way. I have to have at least you know some semblance of uh, where I'm going uh, before I start crafting a story. Okay, yeah. So when it comes to his writing, do you have a favorite book that he's written, and do you know if it has any ties to his later cosmology stuff? So. It probably doesn't because like I'm trying to like I'd probably put misery at the top for me because like that one was and especially having just seen the play, that one was really influential on me as a writer because it not only did it inspire some ideas I've had since then, but also that really taps into I mean, he, he writes about writers a lot in the stories, but that one in particular, it captures this uh, relationship between an author and toxic fandom so well. And it really (laughs) highlights a horror that is very plausible in the real world. Uh, As much as I love his supernatural stuff, I think I really do like the, you know, real world horror that he's able um, to, you know, capture and really heighten those tensions. So I love misery. And also if you're mentioning like, um, you know, the connected world building and the Easter eggs and stuff, I was able to point that out the other day when I saw the play with my dad and friend and I saw, told them at the very end that um, in the final scene after, you know, spoiler alert, um, Paul Sheldon survives and uh, he's doing <laughs> uh, a book tour at the end of the play and the voice that introduces him 
is Dick Halloran. And I was like, do you know who that is? And I'm like, it's the guy from The Shining because in the book he survives. And uh, so that like, I yep. love just even like in a, something like that, there are those Easter eggs and connective tissue. But but I love Misery. I lo- like, it really is hard to pick one because, um, you know, there's I a lot to choose shot. from. There's a lot to choose from. I love The Shining. Uh, and as and then the novella is like, that's the, I think Different Seasons is my favorite collection by him. Uh, because that has some of his most iconic stories there that were then adapted into um, major movies that I really love. So those are kind of the, but, but I still have so far to go. There's so many more I want to read. And, um, and as far as movie adaptations, other than Shawshank and Stand By Me, I think it is probably um, my favorite adaptation there. Uh, and The Mist is a really good one too, both the short oh, yes. story and the movie. I think that's one of the more underrated uh, but that, and that one talk about like is you know, the movie <laughs> the movie differs from the book's ending. Yes, but the movie has one of the darkest endings I've ever mm-hmm. seen. I don't really want to spoil for people who haven't seen it, but go see that one if you want a really just like unsettling feeling. And that's actually one of the few times I can ever remember an author saying, "Hey, you did it better than me." Yeah, yeah. He's gone out and said that about the movie, uh, which I do agree that this. Because I hate ambiguity with every fiber of my being yeah, yeah. When, it be, when it comes to the end of a story. So, like, well, tell me something's happening. Tell me what happens versus right. his whole thing of, well, and then we left. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the movie ends a certain way. Uh, a way. Um, no, I didn't probably, happy. You probably shouldn't have children around if you really like them uh, while watching that. If you don't, maybe you'll like the ending of the film. And... <laughs> Or even if you don't have kids around, like if you're just a parent or like, I mean, yeah. I'm not a parent, but I'm an uncle. Like it's this, an impossible but, like, choice. It, but it just like messes with you so much because it, that idea puts you in there and you're just like, oh, my gosh, what would I do in that scenario? And it's really hard to say. Yeah, I, I, I get it completely. But I mean, on his more literary stuff, all real solid. I love the Green Mile. Oh, Green uh, I love the Shawshank Redemption. Stand yeah. by me. Um Excellent stuff. There's a reason they've been adapted in the film uh-huh. beyond his uh-huh. horror stuff. Like he's a very versatile writer uh-huh. in uh-huh. that sense. Uh, can't go wrong with any of those. Now, I did say I kind of gave it away. My favorite is The Stand. So I talked about that for a bit, but I'll sure. talk about others as well because, like we said, like there are plenty to choose from. Uh-huh. And uh, two others that just keep things simple. It is definitely one of my favorite books he's ever written. Uh-huh. It's a masterpiece of what makes someone afraid. Yeah. And then how do you fight against fear? Well, you can't do it alone. Uh-huh. And if you try to do it alone, you're going to end up dead. I mean, you may end up dead even when you work together, but it's going to be a lot better odds than if you just went by yourself. And it's the whole thing of like, you know, the power of a child's imagination versus yeah. what you lose as an adult. Uh, I think we can all look at that very spiritually. Like when we probably first time those of us came to faith early, like, mm-hmm. where was that kid who just got things, mm-hmm. who just, like, sought after Jesus more than anything? And now I'm here, this uh, grumpy old man, and sometimes it seems like Jesus is as far away because I'm not seeking after him the same way I used to. Like, that it is amazing. Uh, just Pennywise is one of the best villains he's ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, horrendous, no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Uh, it's kind of like the Joker in that regard. Like, mm-hmm. it, I like normally like more nuanced characters, but sometimes you just need someone when they're written really well to be absolute scum. And when they get their comeuppance, I, I cheer every time. 
So there's that. The Shining is, of course, amazing. Uh, definitely, he was very upset with what Kubrick did, changing stuff there. But your mileage may vary. I enjoy the film and I enjoy the book, but both for different reasons. It's funny, too, because I went back recently and saw an interview he did on Letterman back in like late 80s. And uh, Letterman asked him <laughs> about um, the Shining in, like, because I had heard so much, oh, he hated it so much and all that. And I think initially he did because it does change the ending significantly and it just has a different tone to it. But he was saying in that interview that he did admire a lot about the film. It's still he has issues with, you know, the um, storytelling decisions, but he respects that it's a different uh, yeah. version than his own. So that was interesting to watch. Yeah, I think it was a very personal book to him as well. While yeah, he was yeah. dealing with his addiction issues, uh-huh. like he saw Jack as someone who was struggling against fighting those things uh-huh. while wanting to be a family man because he was doing the exact same thing in his own life. And I think one of the things he said, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's like in my book, Jack Torrance is, you know, someone who becomes a madman in Kubrick. He's a madman from the very beginning yeah, and ends up yeah. as a madman. So, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I understand why you would be upset with that. But like this uh-huh. film is still incredibly well made. Sure. Incredibly acted. It's just different. Uh-huh. So uh, actually, that brings up a good question. We'll get to that in a second of like, um. When should you change a book or something like that when you're adapting uh-huh. a film? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But my final answer for book I like would be Salem's Lot. Uh-huh. And I love vampires. I love <laughs> when he was coming up with the story, he uh, wanted the idea of what if Dracula were alive today? And he brought that up to his wife, uh, Tabitha, who is also a writer. Uh-huh. And she said, well, he'd probably get uh, run over by a car. <laughs> and he, he, he he put that away for a little bit, but then he actually started thinking about it. And we get that terrifying, even using the mythos of the vampires, they have to be invited in. Like you can stay inside, but they're going to use everything in their power just to get you to let them inside. That is terrifying. Using people, you know, uh, just to, to tear down the walls of what a town could be. You have the religious strife in the town. You have a crisis of faith for, um, Oh goodness gracious. Uh, what is his name? Catholic. Callahan is that what it is I'll look it up in a bit yeah but that is tremendously well done it is father Callahan yeah so oh and go ahead oh no I was gonna say like there are so many like religious characters and themes he explores uh through his books and you know I mean the pet cemetery is also one of the most like terrifying and like existential questions asked about parenthood and then you know tying that into a spiritual element uh, they're all just, you know, so then, I, said, I, mean, I haven't read it, but I watched The Dead Zone earlier this year. Okay. And that was another one that, like, um, you know, uh, what is it like for a man to wake up after a five-year coma and he's readjusting and then he learns he has this, uh, you know, supernatural power. Yeah, that's one thing, too. Religious fundamentalism has always been something he is, uh, rightly so, very uh-huh. against. Uh-huh. And it, it's <laughs> – but one of the parts is that those characters sometimes could be a little one note. Yeah. 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 And how they're portrayed, like, uh, was it Mrs. Carmody or Carbody or whatever it is in the mist? Like she is kind of the definition of the stock. Yeah. You know, yeah. Religion yeah. is evil kind of person. Um, and then like Carrie's mother sometimes can be a bit uh, much, but then other times he'll have someone like father Callahan who it, actually appears in the dark tower series because mm-hmm. he leaves the town of Salem's lot after realizing that he's not the priest he should have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's his kind of crisis of faith there. Like he doesn't land anywhere where I would be happy, like 
theologically. But at the end of the day, I see the struggle there and I really appreciate where the character goes from where he started. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's extremely well done. And I think uh, for King himself, that's one of those things. His religion, he's kind of always been all over the place. He, uh-huh. Sometimes uh-huh. He, he leans a little closer to where God is. And other times he sees the way Christians are acting and he goes, I want nothing to do with that. Uh, uh, in fact, his daughter is actually. She's a minister, she, she, uni, uh, Unitarian she, minister, I believe. Yes. I didn't know if she was married to a Unitarian minister. I think uh, she a female is. Minister, well, or, or she is. Okay. I think she is, if I'm not mistaken. Um, That's right. They're pretty, all the, everyone in the family is writers in some way. Of course, Joe Hill is his son. And then but <laughs> even his younger son, too, is a writer as well. And no, I oh, believe we, his daughter, is, is, she is the minister. Um, okay. She, I mean, she and her wife might both be. If I, I don't know, I have to look that up. For, okay. Don't yeah, I, 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 I remember the Unitarian part. I couldn't remember who yeah. was who. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I, I see a struggle like with his yeah. own faith. Like, where does he stand uh-huh. through all this stuff? Yep. And uh, actually, for our bonus question, I'm going to ask uh, actually both of you uh, for our special Captivate and Patreon listeners. Like, do you think Stephen King has hope in his life? Uh-huh. Uh, and we'll see where yeah. that lands. So if that yeah. captivates you. Maybe you should throw a little money our way. <laughs> Do it. Do it. But uh, we both brought up The uh, Shining earlier. Like, how do you think – when is it appropriate for a director or a screenwriter to change something from an original a novel or a play or something like that so that it can fit it into a film? That's a good question. I mean, I think you are there is going to be a different vision there from the filmmaker and the author. I mean, well, I mean, look at Fall of House of Usher. It is based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, but it's a yeah. completely fresh story. It just utilizes the themes and the Easter eggs and the stories present in the text and then does its own thing with that. So and then there are other adaptations that are very faithful. Uh, and so. I think it really depends on a case by case basis. Uh, like I, I, I didn't even thought about that before. With um, so one of his reasons not liking The Shining initially is is that is like yeah, when you're reading the book, he is a more like you know normal functioning person uh, at the beginning, <laughs> and then um, but the movie is straight up Jack Nicholson Joker um, throughout, and so I can see where that's you know it, it makes for a good entertainment, but it is different from the message and the purpose that he was trying to convey with the book. So I think it's really it just it really varies. I mean, when Rob Reiner made Stand By Me, uh, Stephen King told him after that that, like, I want you to do have a hand in like all my adaptations going forward or at least for a while. And that's how he you know, why he did Misery. And then um, he was actually originally going to do Shawshank before uh, Frank Darabont did it. But uh, but like, I think it really depends on the property. Um, You know, generally, there is generally like very faithful adaptations are the way to go, but there is a time and a place for a uh, different kind of interpretation um, that I still think keeps, they stay true to the meaning of the text, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, look at, you know, Lord of the Rings changes things, um, but it still very much captures the essence of Tolkien and the, uh, you know, um, mythology that he created there. It just changes some things to better adapt it into a film, but I don't think that's a bad thing. But I, I'm curious on you. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know this is something like we could go through so many adaptations and look at. Like, I mean, <laughs> I have thoughts on. I like I read the book for Killers of the Flower Moon, and I just saw the film the other day, and I have thoughts there about like how it adapted, and there's things I would have done differently. Um, but there are still really powerful elements of the film um, that to capture the essence of what the book was doing. Okay, yeah, I, I definitely agree. 
this is one of those things I, for me, it's one of those, you know, a writer intended something at the very beginning. Like when I write something like uh-huh. I am intending to tell you something, show uh-huh. you something along the way that we're going to work together. You as the reader, me as the writer, we both have that mutual trust that uh-huh. I'm going to get you a story that hopefully satisfies you. And then when someone comes along and says, Hey, I want you to change this. Well, a part of that is me being like, how dare you change anything I've ever done? You know, like I'm perfect in my own way and my story is perfect. Then I was also the critical side of me that says, no, there's this wrong. There's this wrong. You could have written this better. And then if someone actually, I did have a fight with my editor one time for uh, my second book, Broken Veil, of whether there's a certain scene there where a villain was, my intention was for him to be hoisted by his own petard to hand something that was actually going to save a protagonist's life by thinking he's going to like drench him in this water, not knowing it's actually holy water. And that would be one way to get him out there. But my editor, I can't remember exactly what we argued on. It's been so long ago, but he said, you're making him an idiot to do it this way, work it this way to where he's still a fool to give him the ultimate means of being defeated by his action here without making him like a complete nutter buffoon, you know? So, Mm -hmm. That's something I needed. And when it comes to adaptations of uh, King's work, it's one of those things that Kubrick, obviously he has a vision and you're going to do it his way. You're going to retake the take like 600 times before he's satisfied. And he may use take 457. (laughs) But, and King had a very different idea for Shining. But uh, he also did a mini series in the 90s uh, remaking The Shining. It was like a Mm -hmm. Mm two-parter. Which wasn't as well received, and it was a little more faithful. So, really, it depends on who's in charge. Yeah, and how you're working I, together. Like, you go, go ahead. Oh, I, I, I totally agree that there are going to be certain filmmakers that, yeah, they have a specific vision. They're going to do it no matter what people say. And and to, in in many ways, that makes for some great stories. Not always, but yeah, that's why I say it, it really depends on the project and. And you look at Mike Flanagan, like, uh, but really all of his TV projects other than Midnight Mass, which is original, he really does just take kind of the idea. Because I have read some of um, the original Haunting of Hill House novel, and it's nothing like the show. Uh, He just sort of takes the, (laughs) you know, gothic nature of that uh, book and then does a completely different story. Uh, And I mean, he made a great series there. And so that's the thing. I think if he had done like a strict faithful adaptation set in the 1800s, I don't think it would have been as good. Like I like, I liked what he did with the show. Uh, and so, yeah, you have to have that, um, give creators some freedom, but there is a difference between having a vision that works and is meant to tell a good story and then butchering a property in like, like as an example, uh, you know, like Neil Gaiman, t- um, turned down so many Sandman yes. adaptations before the, uh, the show that came out last year is great. But um, before that, there, you know, studios were approaching him and wanted to make like this trilogy about um, Morpheus versus uh, Lucifer, which is not at all what the comic is about and would have been so just Hollywoodized and just really stupid. And he turned I mean, there's famously a John Peters um, pitch that uh, went to him that, of course, had a giant spider in it (laughs) and battled Morpheus. And he had Neil Gaiman had to explain why it was garbage you know and he would never allow that to happen so there's a difference that where if it's a matter of oh we just want to change this completely in an effort for commercial value i think that's a terrible way to go but if it is a 
uh, filmmaker with a specific vision and they want to do something that is different from the source material, not as an insult to the author, but just because they have a different idea and a different approach. And they're also trying to tell a very good, distinctive story. I think that is appropriate in cases. Yeah, it's like the, the most recent uh, adaptation of One Piece into live action mm-hmm. was extremely well done uh, because the original creator, ich- uh, Ichiro Oda, was there supervising the project, uh-huh. you know, vetoing stuff he didn't like, while uh-huh. working with the directors and the writers because you had to be very pragmatic in your adaptation uh-huh. here for like uh-huh. eight or so episodes versus uh, something that are, happens over the course of 100, 100 plus chapters uh-huh. in a manga. And that's not easy to translate with a budget to live action. Now, it'd be different if it were make, remaking it in like a cartoon instead of like the original anime that we're making one over here. Like the budget doesn't matter as much. They can just a shot for shot as much as they want. But live action, that takes a lot more. It takes people yes. working together to make compromises because they're, they're not one to one the same story. But there's mm-hmm. enough there that they're tied together. It right. makes enough sense. Uh, well, it's like, I mean, go, go ahead. no, oh, I was going to say, okay. like, they're making a live action Last Airbender series and like they released images the other day. And <laughs> I know it's not going to be the same as the animated series. And there's no way you can cover <laughs> all of that material for a live action series. But nonetheless, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm interested in seeing what kind of things they change, what remains the same. And, you know, we've already suffered through the M. Night Shyamalan movie, so nothing can be worse than that. Um, so I, I'm in the oh, images there. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But they released images of the Fire Nation characters, and I'm really excited to see some of those characters come to live action form. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with, you know, interpretations. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's one thing, too, with King's work. There was a recent, God help us all, the Dark Tower movie that came out in like 2017, I think. Can I tell which... a quick story about that? Like, uh, just yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Like, my friend and I were going to go. I had already seen it, but. I, that was the year that Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets came out, which I think is very underrated. Not a perfect movie, but underrated. I had yeah. seen it. Friend wanted to see it with me. We went to the theater and it was a very like rundown theater as it was. And we went into that screening and there was a huge slash on the screen. Like it smelled. <laughs> it was just like we were like, we're not seeing this. And so we just like walked down to it. It was like um, another theater there and Dark Tower is playing. So we ended up seeing that. And I'm like. I almost wish I would. I, I would rather see a movie with a slash across the screen than watch this. <laughs> I don't blame you one bit. It is a terrible. Oh my god! Adaptation oh. of the original. Yeah. And what what irks me too is I think they paid him a little money to say this, is that they got Stephen King to say that the director hadn't forgotten the face of his father. Which, if you're into the Dark Tower series, that basically means like. You're on your path. You know it's right. You know what you're supposed to be doing. And uh, that is most definitely not the case. The director did not uh, uh, most definitely forgot the face of his father. Yes. very. uh, But I have heard those rumors of Flanagan actually being involved with the potential TV series of doing the Dark Tower. Yeah. uh, With Amazon, I think, was the last I heard Mm -hmm. of that. Yes. I I am super hyped about that one if that's coming true. Yep. Yeah, like I've heard the rumors too, and I really hope. But yeah, we'll see. But yeah, with that in mind, uh, since this episode is going to be split, uh, let me briefly go over for you, like to hype the audience that doesn't know anything about the Dark Tower series, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. it's about. And I'm going to do the best I can because there's a lot to discuss. Yeah. If you want a series where over time you have a protagonist 
you don't start off liking as much. Someone who is a complete jerk due to what's happened into his past. And you're captivated like, how did it get here? What caused him to be so bitter? What caused him to sacrifice people along the way just for the single-minded goal of reaching the eponymous dark tower? Like going in there, you want to see worlds that are broken because time and space are being destroyed all around you because the beams that hold the worlds together are starting to be destroyed, are starting to be severed from where they're supposed to be as pieces of reality start getting thinner and the boundaries between different realities are very shorter and things cross over, eldritch things cross over and then watch a guy chase after uh, the man in black with his gun, trusty gun that you learn along the way was more than likely melted down from Excalibur and is a familial ancestral weapon. As he teams up with people, his quartet, his group of people that he trusts more than anything as well as uh, probably the most egregious self-insert of an author ever in any work of fiction ever that still somehow works. Guys, you got to check out the Dark Tower series. I'm going to talk about that more in like the more the cosmological side of things with TJ on the next part of the episode. Now, Kevin, you have anything else you want to bring up before we go to recommendations for you? And then I'll actually do the outro for everything with TJ. I would just say out of the stuff I've read in recent years, because he's done some really interesting stuff there as well, like more crime. And he actually did a series of pulp novels that because uh, the publisher had to reach out to him to write an intro for something. He's like, let me write like three of them. And I read one of those. And that's a lot of fun um, called Later. But uh, one that I highly recommend of the last few years is The Institute. Uh, and that one, especially if you're a Stranger Things fan, uh, which is cool because of course Stranger Things derives so much influence from King. Uh, this is a great follow-up to that because it's about a group of super-powered kids that are kept in this government facility. And it has sci-fi, crime, horror, kind of all embedded in there. And it's pretty epic. I read that a few years ago, really enjoyed it. Um, so I, that's the thing about his work is that it has such a, is there's such a large volume and there, it's so, it spans multiple genres. And there's just something I really think for everyone. If you think, Stephen King is just about monsters and stuff. Yes, that's a common theme, but there is a lot more than that um, to mm -hmm. his work. Absolutely. So with that in mind, guys, yeah, check out King's stuff. Did you want that to be your recommendation? You want to try something else? That will be my main one. I also did want a quick um, other that I'm just reading right now. Um, totally separate, but this is a graphic novel from Boom Studios that I also think is relevant for Halloween horror season. It is called... The Sacrifice of Darkness, um, written by Roxanne Gay and Tracy Lynn Oliver, uh, with art by Rebecca Kirby. Um, and it is an adaptation of a short story called We Are the Sacrifice of Darkness. Um, I'll just read the description here real quick off Boom's website. But follow one woman's powerful journey through the new this new landscape as she discovers love, family, and the true light in a world seemingly robbed of any. As she challenges notions of identity, guilt, and survival, she'll find that no matter the darkness, there remain sources of hope that can pierce the veil. And the whole, like, you know, without light is literal. Um, the, there's an um, incident at the beginning of the story where uh, a scientist drives an air machine into the sun and it evaporates it. And so the, this new world is trapped in perpetual darkness. Um, so I only started that earlier. 
Um, but I'm really loving that because uh, I've been going through some of the books I have through Humble Bundle, um, which is a really good resource if you want to um, get some really good indie comics that way. Um, so that's one I want to recommend into the stuff I've already said. So Institute and then, of course, Hall of House Watcher. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we mentioned on writing earlier. Excellent writing uh -huh. resource. But my uh -huh. actual recommendation will be one he wrote before that called Dance Macabre. And this is kind of a mix of things like there are, there's some writing advice in there. There's his reflections on his own work and reflections on horror and film in general. And you get a lot of his insights. I think it came out in like the mid 80s, if I'm remembering correctly. So obviously anything written after that, there may have been some updated editions I haven't read, but it gets into his thought process at that time in his career, at which in my opinion is kind of where he's at his height not to say that everything since then has been bad, uh -huh, but like uh -huh. that's where I really like King a lot is like his uh -huh. earlier stuff. So sure. check out Dance Macabre. So with that, we're going to take it over to TJ for the other side of the conversation. Is Ka a wheel? Does it sound like you've heard that question before? Well, it should because you're in the second half of our discussion on Stephen King and his cosmology and his books and everything in there. And I'm joined this time by... TJ Blackwell, my good friend, the one who I had to come to for the knowledge of everything Dark Tower, everything Stephen King and the intricacies of his multiverses, because as a being himself who experiences time a little different than the rest of us, TJ would know a little more than us. So, TJ, how are you doing today? Well, excellent. So what have you been geeking out on recently, buddy? Oh, recently been kind of. If you say Valorant, I swear to God. Do you want to see my VODs? That's what I stopped doing to record. <laughs> I should know better. So Valorant is your answer. Uh, you know, I don't want to be stagnant. Um, I could say I'm <laughs> getting back into Lord of the Rings in a much deeper way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, actually, I was just talking with a coworker last night and uh, he hadn't seen it before. So we're actually going to see if we can watch it while we're at work when things are kind of less hectic. So I'm looking forward to that because it's been a while since I've watched the movies. That's and it's amazing. been a while since I've read the books, too. Yeah, that's great. But, uh, well, in keeping with my last answer that I gave with Kevin, I'm still playing Spider-Man 2. I'm having the time of my life. I, I'm a little disappointed with the costume choices, really. But, like, if that's my biggest gripe against the game, other than, like, nerfing Peter a little bit, like, I'm A-OK -okay with it. It's still an excellent game. I'm close to the end game. I'm having a good old time, fun time there. So, TJ, uh, as you know, our topic of discussion today is Stephen King and his uh, the cosmological wonders as part of our origins cosmology series. We've been doing this whole time. Like, how did you get into Stephen King's work? Uh, I it's kind of funny. Uh, of course, I had seen like Christine and Cujo, and you know the ones that you just kind of see growing up. I'd seen those, mm -hmm. and that doesn't really count because you're watching those. You don't get much out of you know, the cosmology of the Stephen King universe. Uh, getting into it, really, uh, I read Dr. Sleep was the first King book that I actually read, which is, wow. you know, seems like an odd choice. Uh, and it is an odd choice. But <laughs> I read Dr. Sleep, and then I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll read it, because everybody was reading it. Oh, sure. And, you know, The Shining and Dark Tower was great. I read that in, like, 11th grade, I think. Got into it in 11th okay. grade. And then I was just kind of like, wow, there's a, a lot here. I've not read me, everything. 
Yeah, we have a very similar story then because I was reading it in the 11th grade too is my introduction to Stephen King. And I won't go into details since I already talked about it with Kevin. But my first book was The Stand and enjoyed that immensely and just kept going from there. Yeah. Yeah. How uh, how do you feel about the Castle Rock books? You know, just um, see Castle Rock. Just, I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, just yeah, the stories that say, happen in Castle Rock. Uh, it is dairy. Castle Rock is that? Yeah, Castle gracious. Rock's I the other one. These. Okay, Castle Rock yeah, is yeah. like yeah. I'm trying to remember the books that actually take place in Castle Rock. Uh, is Insomnia there? Cujo, Buick by the Eight. Insomnia Cujo. is not in Castle Rock. Okay, um, yeah, Cujo definitely. That's a good one. Uh, oh yeah, we, Kevin and I talked to. He doesn't remember writing the book because of all the cocaine he was on at the time. Uh, yeah, but yeah, solid stuff. Like early King is probably my favorite King. Yeah, interesting because like, early King was like the non-cosmological King. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, like Dark Tower is its own thing away from everything else. I do still really enjoy that, but like I, I enjoy like you know. Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Stand, The Shining, all that stuff a bit more than his other stuff. And I, like I told Kevin, like I'm way behind on his stuff. I think the last most recent book I read of his was Revival. So there's that. Oh, yeah. Well, so that's a lot. Yeah. Do you yourself have a favorite book? And if so, how does it tie in, if it does, to his larger cosmological mythos? Hmm. Honestly, I, I think my favorite book of Stephen King's might be the gunslinger. Okay. It might be it. I can't really decide. And then, I mean, you know, they're both solid like, choices. Yeah. They're, they're both really involved in the cosmology. Um, one is a little less in your face about it, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, my answer was the Stan, and I actually forgot to go into answering that part. So I'll do it here is that for the stand, obviously we have Randall flag, appearing uh, pretty much for the first time uh, there are a couple rf figures you'll see across different king books and stuff like that that could possibly be tied back to him i i love that part because Randall flag is one of my favorite villains in uh literature and obviously he, you see him later on being it's, well the different aspects is he the man in black is he working with the crimson king does he have his own initiative how are things going there love all that part so Anything else you want to add there before we get into the nitty gritty? Uh, well, have you, have you seen the idea that Randall Flagg is every King antagonist or the man in black is every King? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's true, but I like when no. people speculate about stuff like that. Yeah, I appreciate the effort because like obviously the man in black is not Pennywise. Yes. Two wholly different people. Yeah. Or into entities. All right. Well, let's get into it. Like. As far as the cosmological side of things, uh, King, as Kevin and I noted before, he doesn't always plan things out. And as time went on, he did after his car crash uh, incident where he was run over, realized, oh, oh, I haven't finished my Dark Tower series. People are really looking forward to this. This is something I want to get done, you know, just in case anything happens to me. So he buckled down, started writing more. Uh, We got the rest of that series going there and actually in the song of Susanna, which is the sixth book, we first hear of the entity known as gone or Gan. Now this kind of serves as the actual, uh, almighty God figure of the series, but he's not alone in, uh, and I actually learned this as I was doing my research because I've never once heard of her before. He has an equal and opposite mother God in Bessa 
who appears in the Dark Tower comics as a as being mentioned there, which actually I've never read those. Marvel did those back, I want to say around the time I was leaving high school. So uh, that's something I do need to get into. But she kind of serves as like a not necessarily a trickster figure. She's more into like gambling and stuff like that, if I remember correctly. So how do you feel about those two characters? Like, obviously, we're given very brief glimpses into it. They don't actually physically appear, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. They're not like, you know, they're said to be, you know, all powerful, like deific beings. And they're, we don't really, they're just not very interactive. Yeah. You know, and like people pray to Bessa and like ask Bessa for, you know, help and things. But it's, I don't know. It feels like one of those things King kind of tacked on there to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's weight there because people, you know, follow the will of Gan and they do worship them. But there are other things, you know, I feel like other entities in King's universe are more deserving or earn it more. Yeah, I can definitely see that because uh, when we look at Gan, it's kind of like one of those things written after the fact, obviously. Mm-hmm. And like there is the, the white versus the red, the red being like the Crimson King trying to break everything down uh, and mold it into his own image. Then we have the white, which serves the purpose of, you know, keeping things not as they are, but like to that extent of not being destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> so, and actually, if I remember correctly, one of the kind of the little retcons he makes along the way is that Bessa is actually represented physically in the form of the rose that is protected within the towers. Like it's been a while since I've reread the Dark Tower series, but I'm fairly certain he doesn't mention her by name there because I'm fairly certain the first time that her name is mentioned is in a, like a supplemental, like Marvel, uh, Dark Tower comic book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's just she is the rose in universe. Yeah, it's like and then any time, you know, somebody mentions the Rose in a King novel. Now you're supposed to know like, oh, okay, that's her. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this. I I think I actually talked about this in our cold episode we did for systematic, excuse me, not systematic, a whole church. Uh, I met in college a group of people known as the, oh, goodness gracious, what is their name? The World Mission Society Church of God or something like that. They're a Korean cult. And they believe in both a father God and the mother God. Now, have you ever encountered anyone like that before in your life? I have not. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. They are. It was actually one of those bits of serendipity early in my, you know, walk is like learning, okay, why do they believe what I believe? Excuse me. Why do they believe what they believe? Why do I believe what I believe? And that there is a singular father three in one. But then they look at scripture and they'll point out and say, oh, this verse in Isaiah says God is acting like a mother. So therefore, there must be a mother God, too. It's like, And then you look at the original Hebrew for Genesis and see bara, which is he created. It's a very masculine action performed there. So uh, I didn't know if you'd encountered it before. I know they're getting a lot more prevalent. I actually was just looking at the news about them the other day and people are warning the hey, like, watch out for them. They're, they attack you pretty much two on two. Not like actually physically, but like cornering you and trying to get you alone, bring you back uh, to the mothership as it were, so that they can uh, proselytize to you, evangelize to you. So uh, listeners, if you do encounter them, now you know what they're about. So look out. But on yeah, the actual receiving. Yeah, go ahead. I wish that would happen to me. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah, it, it's they were wild people. 
Uh, but getting back to Stephen King, we kind of next get to some of the earliest of the cosmology in his series in the book of it, where we see that Pennywise is not just some mystical figure, not just some emotion eater that just preys on children. It's actually a being that existed essentially before creation to an extent, at least in the the world of it, which is not the Keystone Earth in Stephen King's Keystone Earth is actually like our world where Stephen King exists in. This is kind of like one of the main worlds where a lot of his stuff happens in is the world of it. And Materin is the turtle that essentially vomited up the earth after a bad digestive period or something like that and created our universe. And it was very offended by that fact, crash landed on earth and has been preying on humans ever since. Uh, so how do you feel TJ uh, about the backstory of earth, you know, in its version of that, at least of only being created due to a divine figure, like vomiting it out. I don't know. That's one of those things where I'm kind of like, what are you, what are you going to do about it? If that's the way it is, then so be it. <laughs> then, uh, it, you know, who's to say that's not how God created the world. <laughs> you don't know. Well, if he chose to do that way, he definitely didn't put it in the book. No, but I it, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just to maintain his dignity. Yeah. Say, ah, we, we can skirt over that fact. Now, it's kind of like you know finding out that the Earth is actually on top of a bunch of elephants who are on top of a turtle. Like if that was actually real or something like that. Like I, I think King's just being playful here. I don't think he like was trying to make a religious statement with this. But uh, how about how do we feel about those two entities as well, Maturin and It, or yeah, Pennywise himself, itself. Yeah. So I think, gosh. So it's an interesting dualism and it's not an exact dualism like, you know, some people think we have or like the Jedi and the Sith, allegedly. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, don't know, I like what he's doing. You know, these things that are clearly different. Um, are the turtles part of Maturin as well? I mean, the elephants? The I thought that species? was Discworld. No, uh, well, that's the Discworld one is based off of like an older concept that people had that kind of, it, he used it more as like a tongue in cheek way of that's how the world works. Mm. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, but as forces, I do like it a lot. Uh, Maturin is just kind of chilling, doing his thing. It's kind of like Atlas. And, <laughs> and while Pennywise, it just gets to do whatever he wants. And Maturin, the one who clearly could stop him can't. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. Th there's a unique dualism there, as you put it. It's like, uh, in a sense that that goes against like our idea, like if you look outside of Christianity, you go, well, God and Satan, obviously they're equal forces. No, we actually look in scripture. There's clearly one above the other and innate Satan. But in this, these two feel like they're very closely tied together, a very uh, kind of yin yang Shintoism uh, kind of uh, Taoism kind of look at the world of there being these equal but opposite forces and, Gone, excuse me, not gone. Maturin himself is acting against Pennywise in his own way, but it doesn't look like it unless mm -hmm. you know you end up in the ritual of Chud, as uh, Bill does as part of the story early on. Well, actually, excuse me, later on. And it, it's interesting to see the way the two work against each other. Like Pennywise, it's very obvious what it, its influence is in the world. H how do you feel about that? 
No, uh, I mean, I feel like that's real. That's, you know, uh, darkness does not move quietly. Mm. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, it's kind of a very obvious when there's a darker presence or figure working against people in this world. Like, it's kind of obvious when, uh, you know, a tsunami comes or a hurricane or an earthquake or someone obviously using their, you know, money for evil or uh, pastors saying inflammatory speeches at a church rather than anything that came from the actual Gospels. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah. It, it's it's subtler to see the good in the world because it's, we live in such a fallen world. It's harder to see it. Yeah, and, and it's, it speaks to their roles in the story because Maturin's role is, you know, not to take the spotlight. And this is not, you know, in universe. This is kind of just as literature. That you don't want your big, powerful God figure to, to just be there and be like, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. So he kind of has to take the back seat in terms of what he's doing. And then your antagonistic force is the conflict is what needs to be read about. So they're kind of a victim of circumstance mm. of, you know, being in a book. But <laughs> well, that's a good point, too, is that that whole deus ex machina idea of like we have this, you know, more heavenly esque figure intervene like what is the point where that becomes well then what's the point of having our characters do anything you know they're not struggling it's not an effort for them to get things done they're just being handed something so yeah i completely agree like you, there's got to be a way you can play and have a an upper level figure like a maturin like a gon like god himself without like well he'll solve everything because yeah sure god can choose to intervene if he wants to but that does not an interesting story make Nope. You know, uh, divine love is uncontrolling. Mm. Can't stop us from being us. That's free will. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add for the two of them? Uh, I think concept-wise, Pennywise is probably like the coolest entity uh, until – and, well, I, you know, I think it's he's is the Crimson King. I think they are okay. the same. Uh, so the Crimson King is really like, wow, that's – Awesome, terrifying, awesome in the classical sense. Fascinating. Yeah, I have heard that before. That people do believe they're one and the same. I think so. Yeah, I don't think I stand on that, but I can definitely see where the argument would come from. Yeah, uh, really, it comes from like the deadlights. You know, the yes. King uses the deadlights to move between levels of the tower. That makes enough sense. All right. So as this multiverse is being created. What we find along the way in Roland's journey, for those of you not know, Roland is the main character of the Dark Tower series. Uh, he's a gunslinger. Uh, he, his job is basically to track down the man in black, find where the Crimson King is, and stop him from destroying reality as we know it. And reality is being held together by these uh, kind of metaphysical like tethers that are holding everything in place called the beams. And at this point in the story, I believe at least two of the six have been destroyed, if I remember correctly, by the Crimson King's forces. And as well as we learn the Rose, we also found that earlier, also Bessa in the physical form, is there as a way of maintaining that balance. That if the Rose is destroyed, reality as we know it will be gone. Uh, and it leads us to our titular Dark Tower, where everything is tied together, where the Crimson King is trying to get inside of and take control of it. So uh, how do you feel about the world building done here? You know, with these all being used as keystones that keep reality tethered together. Yeah. I, so I like it and I don't just like it because it is like 
convoluted in a way that you know our own universe is tied together in a way that you couldn't possibly understand uh you know just being a human without you know tools faith like science to to describe it to you in that if you aren't able to like use go into todash space and move between the dimensions of Stephen King's cosmology how could you fathom what's happening here mm. unless you're just at the dark tower so i like that it feels kind of mystic okay it was probably explain some terms here todash is kind of the concept of like the in between of realities most of the time if you go into the todash you're not going to make your way out of it unless you're using very specific means to travel between different realities uh we didn't even explain who the crimson king was he is basically our antagonist for the series that we don't see until the very end of the dark tower where uh, spoilers along the way he has degraded over time mentally uh, is now undead and basically has lost his mind to the point where he's just throwing what is it he's just throwing the snitches at people or mm-hmm. the snitches as they call it for copyright purposes yeah and he is written out of existence uh, excuse me drawn out of existence by uh good old patrick from insomnia which is the whole point of that book because roland's guns don't affect him anymore at this point in his life so his job is he wants to unmake reality in his own image by taking down the beams that support reality, finding the rose, using it for his own purposes, and then leading from the Dark Tower itself, learning how can he reshape reality. Uh, but uh, to the question I posed, I love it as a concept for like, okay, how do we raise the stakes? Like, you know, we have a big bad here. They want to remake reality. Well, how do they do that? Well, because reality works this way. We have these beams that if you have them together – it ties this uh, reality to this reality over here, which ties it to this reality over here. But if one of those beams, beams is broken, like it does to Gilead, which is Roland's world, it becomes lost, essentially. It's still there, but it's, it's dying. And it has the potential to like, be wiped from existence itself. And that's such a fun way to play with it. It raises the stakes. We've got to stop these beams from being destroyed. How do we do that? If you look, if you map out Stephen King's books... And kind of do it in like a, I don't remember the the right word, but a pie chart, but not a pie chart, you know, a big circular map. Uh, and you put the dark tower in the middle, then you can start drawing the beams out to the other mm. uh, worlds that Stephen King writes in. And it's it centered on the dark tower. It becomes the dark tower and his universe mapped out really well. I think that's awesome. Oh, yes. And like from a writing standpoint, too, like I talked about this with Kevin. I love a connected universe, especially within your own writing itself, not relying on anyone else. And King does that masterfully in like there will be even like one word will be used and go, oh, well, that ties into the talisman or that that's actually why, you know, Pet Cemetery exists or what have you. And that's just so much fun. It's very rewarding as a reader to if I'm paying attention, I'm going to notice those threads and go, man, there's so much more in here because the author cares that much about everything else that he's written that he ties them together like that. Mm. Yeah, and it's amazing that it is done so well because he definitely didn't have a plan for it at the start. This isn't One Piece, uh, which also, <laughs> I hate to be the guy, but Oda didn't plan all of it from the start. He just planned most nope. of it. But, I mean, for someone who didn't plan all of that, he's doing extremely well. Yeah, they both are. I think they're if they... Like got together and talked about their writing, I think a, a lot of good would come from of it. 
Actually, it's funny enough, we did mention One Piece last time uh, as we were talking, like the differences between the Shining book and the Shining film. And like, uh, how do you feel about how like the, as a pragmatic adaptation of One Piece, it is handled compared to the manga it's adapting? Uh, pragmatically? It, great. Yes. It made changes it needed to make. Yeah, I argued much the same. So there we go. I was expecting a short answer for that because I know TJ well enough. Do you have anything else you want to add about the beams, the rose, the dark tower? Did we talk about insomnia? Uh, briefly. But do you want to go more in depth? Uh, not really. But that's where we see the Crimson King for the first time. As yes. uh, Robert's Robert something? His mom. Crimson King takes the form of his mom before revealing himself. Yeah. But, and that's where he's trying to kill Patrick because he knows as a prophecy that Patrick will be able to kill the Crimson King, as we do see in the Dark Tower, where Patrick's ability is to like draw stuff and either, if I remember correctly, give them life or take it away. It's kind of a bit of a reality war for himself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then in Insomnia, the Crimson King tells Roberts, Ralph, Ralph Roberts. Okay. Uh, I can be anything I want. You may not know it, but shape changing is a time honored tradition in Derry. <laughs> That's true. It's been so long since I've read Insomnia. Oh, it's so good. So, but, uh, I think you think you might ahead. be Pennywise. <laughs> All right, that's that's further proof live on the podcast. I like it because one of the things we find that is Patrick is one of many people who have telekinetic or a reality warping capabilities that are uh, desired by the Crimson King for uses in his kind of slave uh, forces known as the breakers, whose job it is to concentrate their will and power onto the beams to break them apart. And that's such a cool concept, too, because even like uh, we get to short stories like the low men in yellow coats or something like that, like even a low-level telekinetic telepath, I can't remember exactly which one he is in a story, is enough of a use to be thrown against the beam itself to try and break it down that the Crimson King will send his people after him. No. Oh, yeah. So with that said, we have to move on to Ka. Now, Ka is one of those things that's kind of taken from portions of Egyptian mythology Uh, It's that sense of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here of there being a a destiny or fate to the world and to people. And it's not exactly like it doesn't have to be a plan for reality, but like it works itself as like a guide to what could be a plan. It's a very difficult thing to talk about because it can also mean like life force and stuff like that. Uh, and Ka is actually used several times in reference to groups like our Cotet is our main characters working together. Uh, Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Uncle, uh, Jake, mm-hmm. and Oi. Good old, good old Oi. And it's, it's used in that sense of like, you know, like I said earlier, destiny or fate. So, TJ, how do you feel it, on what do, you, what do you think of the idea of all things being predetermined by fate or destiny? Well, I am not a Calvinist. (laughs) Final answer. Uh, (laughs) No, I don't hate it. It's it's kind of like I'm having trouble remembering what it's called. Uh, Quantum immortality. It's like if someone dies and they weren't supposed to die yet, they get shunted to a new universe where everything's the same, but they didn't die. Uh, One of those things like the universe corrects itself if it has to. And I like that idea. 
So I, I appreciate that car and it's not super fleshed out, but I appreciate its presence. And it, at first I thought it was kind of like karma, uh, not in like the modern sense where it's like, oh, if you do bad, bad things happen. But it's really not. It's kind of its own thing. It's just the universe has a will and tries to exert it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me, I'm weird and I'm a predestination and free will kind of person. However, the metaphysics of that work when it comes to, you know, salvation and all that, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Uh, it's just to me, it makes sense that God being who he is, being all powerful, being all loving, desires us to come to him. But at that same time, people are going to say no. They have the right to say no because they are fallen. And yet God is still working things towards the good of those who love him. He's crafting history out as things go on, knowing how people are going to react. And if we look at something like Pharaoh uh, in Exodus, like it doesn't start off with, you know, a God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It starts with Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then it goes to God hardened Pharaoh's heart to like confirm the choices that Pharaoh had already made that were working alongside God's own plan to get Israel out of uh, Egypt. So that's why I take it. I know there are other people that have vastly different opinions on your predestination and free will. Now, when it comes to like Ka, fate or destiny, I, I believe in destiny to an extent in that, you know, it's going to happen mm -hmm. regardless of what people do or because of what people do. It's going to happen. But it's because of those free choices, those that free will made along the way is why it happens. And I don't know exactly what you would call that point of view uh, other than heretical in some people's minds. But that's where I land. Yeah, I've, I've always felt like very uh, come what may. I It's my life and that's the way it was going to happen no matter what I did. So uh, mm -hmm. that allows me to live with no to few regrets. I want to say no regrets, but yeah, yeah. And it, if you embody that, I think it allows you to live kind of stress free uh, because if there's something stressing you out and you can do something about it, then you do something about it and you don't worry about it. And if there's something stressing you out that you can't do anything about, then why are you worrying about it? You can't do anything about it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's one of those things that at a certain point you're going to have to come to terms with like, well, what do I think on this? And it feels like in the Dark Tower series itself, like Ka is a wheel. Ka is constantly changing. We learn along the way. This is not the first time Roland has been on this journey. And it's not going to be the last either. If you go past the chapter, Stephen King says, hey, if you just want a perfect ending, here you go. But then he does this very Stephen King thing of like, there's more. And you yeah. read. And this time around, he has the horn of uh, Eld. Yeah. Yeah. I'd with them i was reading it earlier uh, yeah yeah the, uh, something that will help him along his journey which means that things have changed on this loop rather than what happened before so it doesn't seem in that things are predetermined to bring a point to where they're going to be done differently the next l okay they're going to be done differently the next time around the tower gives roland the chance to be better to it sounds like his friends in this new reality have lasted a lot longer than it did in the old one. He hasn't lost some of the things along the way. So maybe he's more positive thinker this time around. Who knows? So that's where it kind of lands there. Anything else you want to add for Kaf? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. At, at some point, it seems kind of like it's undead unluck, you know? <laughs> okay. It's like, we're going to try that again. Let's let's try again. Are you caught time. up? Uh, I'm one behind. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. 
Yeah. I definitely feel like that. That's a reference to a manga. If anyone doesn't know that it's not my favorite in the world, but it's still, it's good enough. Well, had a rough right. introduction, but here we get to one of the minions of the Crimson King. We mentioned him earlier, Randall flag, the dark man, uh, one of my favorite villains in fiction. And what is his goal? Well, it kind of depends on where he's at and how much of a rational mind he has. Because he's all over the place. We see him even in a, oh gosh, what's the fantasy book? The Eye of the Dragon, Eyes of the Dragon. Oh, he's dragon. working as yeah, as an evil advisor, a very Jafar kind of figure before you know Aladdin came out, and just whispering in the king's ear and stuff like that. We also see him as the Man in Black, Walter O'Dim. Or are they the same character? Are they different characters? It's kind of hard to tell at times uh, as time goes on. But like obviously, my introduction to him was in a stand where you see him like leading in a very satanic way uh, the forces of the world to survive this plague to mold the earth in his image to be worshipped as God, a very beast figure in that sense. Uh, so my question to you, TJ, is Randall Flagg King's best villain? Yes. Okay. More in depth. Yeah. Let me hear. Well, so hear. actually, I think King's best villain is the army in the mist. Because um, <laughs> the army somehow found out a way to open a gate to Todash space and just let all the monstrosities in. Okay, and okay. It just didn't resolve it. Are you are you more of a short story or a movie guy? I love the movie. Absolutely, yeah. Kevin and I talked about that too. Uh, King said he prefers that ending too. Like it gives finality to something instead of the ambiguity of, well, we could keep going or not. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, how about Flag? Oh, uh, so I like Flag a lot. Uh, I really do. I like the theory that he is all of the antagonists, but there's not really an antagonist that King gets to write about as much as Flag. Mm-hmm. That helps a lot with fleshing him out and making him seem like a real villain. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to someone like Pennywise, who is this irredeemable uh force of nature that exists beyond what we recognize as time that just goes praise after children. It's like kind of the perfect villain in a way. Like I, I talked with Kevin about him kind of being like the Joker, like you don't need to know too much. You just know like perfect villain. They're going to do evil things. And flag two in that uh, extent has moments of humanity in him as he's dealing with people like in the stand, you do see him like take on a wife and in some ways be tender but also in a very manipulative sense. He's all over the place there. And I love to see this master manipulator, like number one, uh, get hoisted by his own petard time and time again by things that he thinks are beneath him. But then two, like seeing how he goes to people and prays on their thoughts, prays on their feelings to go, Oh, well just join my side. I'll help you out. I'll be your number one fan. Like we'll get things done here. Just work with me. And he's perfect for that. Yeah. He's a good, like, corrupted Pentecostal pastor. (laughs) I see it. I see it. And then, too, like, uh, even his death kind of feels a little anticlimactic to me. I've thought about it since I first originally read it, where he's killed by Mordred, who's like the the half spawn of Roland and Susanna and all this mess with the Incubus and Succubus. Yeah, but I do enjoy it ultimately because once again, he is defeated by something he thought beneath him. Yeah, you'd figured he'd learn his lesson. 
but I, I, he, I think he reflects the Crimson King in that way a lot because the yeah. Crimson King for sure could have collapsed you know, the universe if he was more willing to do more work by himself. Yeah. When he was powerful. And that's the thing about him too is we'll go ahead and transition to the Crimson King. We talked about him a little bit earlier, but he could have done all that. Now, he himself is uh, believed to be the illegitimate child of Arthur Eld, who is essentially our King Arthur from which Roland's line is descended from where he gets uh, melted down guns that were once Excalibur. Uh, so there's that duality there. It's like he is essentially family to Roland, several generations removed. But he could have done all these things as he's seeking out knowledge, trying to find a way to where he can become the center of the tower, like change things to where he is God in this world. Like, but he relies on other people. Yeah. How do you feel about how that's handled? I think it's good. Uh, it's like I said, it reminds me of Flag, and it shows that he is not a lot of villains fall into that trap where they think they're too powerful to fail. Uh, so I, I appreciate it when they don't fall for that. But this is the one case where it's like, you know, stop sending breakers. <laughs> like, get out there yourself, buddy. Yeah. Sometimes you have to take that risk. Well, I did. we did briefly talk about it earlier as well. Like, when Roland finally confronts him at the end of the Dark Tower, he's not who we're expecting. Mm-hmm. We're expecting some, you know, Palpatine kind of figure... Uh, who's still got his mind and wits about him, but instead he's broken down because of the degradation of the evil that he's done, the the fact that he's undead right now, and he's babbling incoherently and is taken out by people who really shouldn't be able to do that if he were at his full extent of his power. But because he's not, he does end up dying. So how did how did you feel about the actual reveal of who he was and how he operates? Yeah, I, mean, I do like that because we know he wasn't, he wasn't weak before, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he, so he destroys the remnants of Roland's realm, Gilead mm-hmm. and commits suicide. The Crimson King does doing it. And that's what makes him weak. That's what like puts him in this state. Uh, it's just, it's odd. I feel like it's not ideal. I would have liked something a little more climactic, but you know, Stephen King is is great at a lot of things, and I don't think endings are one of them. There's a common complaint in its way. I'm not always as harsh as other people are, but I definitely get why people would be upset with certain things that he does. So I just feel what well, I kind of wrapped up a little too neatly along the way. And that's if you read the original ending versus what happens in that chapter. He says, hey, totally don't read this. Right. Where we're given another chance. So maybe the Crimson King is different in that time. Who knows? Do you have anything else you want to say about him? I just feel like he, he gets so much buildup and, you know, he is the antagonist. And we're supposed to get like this big epic duel between our nice quartet and the Crimson King. I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. I'll probably reread it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something I'm going to reread later on. Uh, I get a lot from rereading stories like this, especially when you start noticing everything that ties together. Uh like I was talking with Kevin too about how much I love Father Callahan's journey, uh, not exactly where he ends up theologically, but like where he ends up as a character versus how he started in Salem's Lot, and then you know, becoming a member of the Cotet and finding new purpose in his life, you know, beyond just fighting vampires. Oh, it's excellent there. So, uh, the Dark Tower series. If you guys haven't read it, if you haven't read anything by Stephen King, like uh, where would you say would be a good place for people to start if they want to start off small? Small, huh? Yeah. The Gunslinger. Okay. 
So if they wanted, they wanted specifically to get into the Dark Tower, you just start with the first book. Yeah, start with the first book in the Dark Tower. And uh, from there, you can branch out into the rest of the cosmology because it is not strictly necessary to understand it to enjoy the books. Okay. And I think you'll get the most you'll get the most jumping off points from the gunslinger. All right. Me, me myself, I will pick, I mean, might as well just start at the beginning. Go to Carrie. Uh, he's a young oh. author. He's learning how to get things done. But Carrie's still a very solid book to this day. And you start seeing where King begins versus where he ends up along the way. Like, can't go wrong with that. If you want to go something spookier, that's shorter. Go to Salem's Lot or The Shining. If you've already seen the movie, you want to see how it was done differently, I'd recommend reading the book there. Like, if you just want to start in King, just go to, go to the very beginning. Go, go to Carrie. Yeah. Or like The Mist. I don't know. You can really start mostly anywhere. I don't recommend yeah. starting with Dr. Sleep. Yeah. As much as I love the stand, and I'm glad it was my introduction, not everyone's prepared to read the unabridged 1,000 plus pages to get into Stephen King. And I don't blame you for that. Not everyone's built that way. I yep. am because I was captivated in the moment I started reading it. Uh, I love convoluted stuff like that. But not everyone has to be wired my way, and the world is better off that way. So any final thoughts on the cosmology before we head on into our wrap-up? I, I think as really the first person to do this kind of thing and make this big, expansive multiverse in which he can play around, he did amazing. I do think it's been done better since. Uh, but, you know... It, this is the one. This is the first one. And it deserves its respect and it deserves your time because it's good. And it's one of the other things Kevin and I talked about, too, is we're really hoping that Mike Flanagan actually gets to do his Amazon Dark Tower book by book series that doesn't do movies, but just like gives the time needed to flesh everything out. I'm hoping for that more than anything. Yeah, that would be great. All right. So, TJ, do you have any recommendations to give the audience? Recommendations. Try to look at my bookshelf, see what I just picked up recently. <laughs> Play Valorant. You, I despise you so much. I love you. Okay, well, that's TJ's recommendation. Mine is uh, an odd one in that I recently have caught up to all the podcasts that I'm, uh, I listen to. So I decided to just to re-listen to the start of SG. And I am really enjoying the journey to see where it started from. And I know it's such a dark and terrible period of time where I'm not around to be the voice of reason, but it, you got to be patient. There's a plenty, plenty of good stuff there. Uh, so if, please just re-listen to the old episodes. There's a lot of quality discussions had there at the very beginning. Uh, so listeners, thank you for what you do here. We're very appreciative of you listening. And uh, for those of you who want to head over to Patreon and uh, captivate to just help us to keep the lights on, get things going and flowing we will be in, uh, I think, yes, this episode will release in time. We'll be at the Comic-Con in North Carolina. Which one is that again, TJ? Will you be there for that? I will. Okay, it's November 4th, November right? 4th. Okay. Uh, what city is it in? Raleigh. Okay. At Raleigh Comic-Con there, uh, having a panel that I know at least will, TJ, uh, I think Kevin and Joshua will be there too. Who knows? I have to look that I up. I know will. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think it's at 1 p.m. that day. Uh, if it's a multi-day week, yep. who knows? Uh, I don't know because I won't be there, unfortunately, because I'm still at school up here. But head out that way and support us there. We'd love to have you listen to a live podcast recording that we're doing there. 
Um, so please, listeners, just give you a chance. Just leave a five-star review in your podcasting platform of choice. Head to our YouTube or Discord. We have a lot of quality stuff there we're talking about, too. But remember, we're all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazal Ministries podcast network.